Welcome to Productivity Mastery. Stoy here, a productivity and performance coach on a mission to help businesses and people get the most out of their time. On this podcast, I'll bring you exceptional performers and together unlock what it takes to perform at your highest level. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this episode. Why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, and I'm actually curious to hear more about uh, your professional journey. So what's your background and how did you end up where you are today? Okay, so I'm an American. Um, don't hold that against me today or for the next couple of days. Um, I've spent most of my life as an entrepreneur. I've built 11 companies in six different countries. I sold eight. A few years ago, I took a break from being an entrepreneur and became a teacher and really, really liked it and sort of found it as a calling in life. The only issue is being a teacher, you don't make much money. So then I went back to doing consulting work again and I said, well, you know what? I still want to be a teacher. So I'm trying to find ways to, <laughs> to bring my teaching to the world and hopefully make more money with it as I go. Um, but it is something I really enjoy. And I'm located in Ostend, Belgium, on the coast. So if I look out my window on one side, I've got a beautiful golf course. And the other side, I've got the sea. And I'm excited about the meeting today because I've been following you for a while, Stoyan. And you've always got energy every time I see you. So I'm counting on your energy today, man. Oh, I'll do my best, man. I'll do my best. That's uh, that's part of what uh, what I stand for, and hopefully we can inspire people also with uh, with our energy. But Brian, um, we actually met. What is it like three years ago, online? Now you're gonna make me feel bad because that's how long ago <laughs> I started my book. I said, you know, my starting point is, you know, Stoyan, how would you like to write a chapter in a book? Yeah, oh, that's a good idea. And I said, well, the deadline's two months from now, because that's when I plan to be finished with my book. So um, only, you know, 34 months later. No, it can't be three years ago we met. Two years ago we met. It makes me feel better that way. So, so talk, should... talk to me about this. You know, like, why the heck does the world need a new book on innovation and, and building ideas? The honest answer is they probably don't need a new book because there's lots and lots and lots of books. In fact, there's 200,000 books on innovation right now you can order on Amazon. What is needed is a couple really good books, a couple of things that tie things together. So the challenge that I've faced over the last year is how do you go from making a book to making a great book? And the thought that came up for me there is I'm a pretty clever guy but if I'm really clever, I will bring other clever people in with me. So I decided to write a book with 20 plus co-authors. And by the way, that was one of the best decisions and one of the worst decisions that anybody has ever made because trying to bring 20 co-authors together to write something is like hurting cats and trying to get them to come into a room. But we're done. The book is out next week and I'm really excited about it. And it is going to be a great book. Talk to me about the process of, first of all, selecting the authors and then managing the process of having so many co-authors in a book. So what I did, the way I started this is I looked for people who had written something before and I went out and talked to a few people and said, hey, would you be interested? And then it sort of snowballed from there. 
Um, I never actually thought that anybody would want to write something in a book. And then I found out that there was a few hundred people who wanted to write something in a book. So then I went through a st you know, standardized process, asking people questions, doing things step by step and interviewing people. It took me almost a month just to identify the right co-authors. And what I found out along the way, which is quite interesting, is actually there's a whole business in charging co-authors to write chapters, if you can imagine that. So imagine you not only write, but you have to pay to write. So that, that is the process there. But you know, the idea behind it was anybody who writes about something is limited in their world experience. And if you want good stories, the opportunity is to use the experiences of all the people around you to get good stories. Because you know, the things that's fun to read is stories and pulling them together in an interesting way. So that's the process I've been going through. Um, I've been very, very slow and all the co-authors would agree. He said, look, you know, you promised to finish this in two months and then boom, nothing happened. I sort of fell off the face of the earth. And, you know, they say that the COVID crisis was a horrible thing, but for me, it was a fantastic thing. I couldn't go out. I had to get, get up in the morning. My, my uh, commute in the morning was only to my desk and I could go to my desk and write. So without COVID, this book wouldn't be finished right now. But that's the process. So what were some of the most challenging moments in trying to manage and to sort of fulfill the expectations of 20 plus co-authors? So if you talk to 20 people that are specialists in innovation, there's 20 different views of how innovation works. They have 20 different models of how to put it together. And my my point of view is I said, look, I want all of you to buy into one model. And that's a hell of a challenge. And so what there was is sort of this ongoing sales process, but also a sort of a bargaining process because actually everybody brought their own ideas. And when you're taking those ideas into account, your ideas get a little bit better. And the challenge for me was to keep myself open-minded and to keep myself pushing forward in the same direction at the same time. Because if I listened to everybody, it would still be another couple of years before the book was done. But if I listened to nobody, then it wouldn't be very good. So the challenge was sort of, I'll call this loose tight, you know, loose because you're open and tight because you continue moving forward. And I'm happy with where we are right now. Yeah, I've, I've read uh, not the whole book yet, but uh, some of it. And I, I got to say, I'm, I'm really happy with the result after this much uh, work and effort that you put there. And uh, from my own experience in the last couple of years, writing my own book with one co-author, mm. <laughs> it's been quite a journey, man. It's been quite a journey. I never thought, you know, because when you don't write books, it looks so much easier. <laughs> And when you actually start the process, it's like, wow, there's so much to consider. And, and for me, being a professional speaker, being a consultant, speaking in front of people, I thought it's going to be a similar process. If I can speak and I can write it. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a completely different uh, bow game. Um, because something that you can say it in a keynote, in a workshop, is not going to come out good in a written content right so uh, i wonder if you had some similar experiences 
being a consultant yourself? No, no. Actually, the original idea for me was to have the co-authors write their chapters as a presentation. I said, okay, write up a presentation, give me a few slides, I'll turn it into something that's good. But the problem that comes up is in your presentation, you have visuals. So when you're talking and you have the visuals together, you're communicating the story. But when you go to a book, you've only got the words. And so how do you communicate in words all these things that they were trying to say with a few visuals and a few words on the other side? So that was challenging. And I think, I mean, the other thing that comes up, and you must have experienced this in your work with your co-author, is people are very precious about their words. So, you know, you edit a sentence, you could edit it 50 times. And, you know, you'll even be changing it back to what you wrote before because you don't remember what you were talking about. And so I think that was a challenge, but I have to give the co-authors credit. They gave me a lot of liberty and a lot of faith and it's come together in a good way right now. And by the way, how's your book? Is it coming out or is it out? Pretty much the same like you, uh, it's being sent to the designers. She sent us today the um, sample chapter in terms of putting everything in the layout. So mm -hmm. the copy is there, it's being edited and re-edited and confirmed by our by our language editor who is by the way amazing uh, jessica if you're watching us thank you for all the tough love that you gave us but um, i think it's going to be out i don't want to say a specific date but within two weeks it's going to be out as well so do you want to have a contest to see who finishes first <laughs> we're, we're at that point today and it is live now so we can say it's november 3rd right now and and who is going to be done first? That's a great contest. The, the only problem is, uh, is our designer is, is going to be off work for... for oh, months. you're going to blame it on the designer. No, I no, hear it all the way from here. No, she's being great. You know? Look, she's being great. We're the one that, like, uh, you know, been, so... But but again, I'm, I'm happy to start, uh, you know, but but you, you start with advantage anyway, so... So let's let's do it. Why not? Let's do it. Who's gonna get, get the book out? Is going to buy beer for the rest, for the other person. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> so, uh, those of you who are watching, guys, uh, make sure to post a comment, ask a question. We're gonna talk about innovation. We're gonna talk about uh, cycles, which is actually my next question. What is cycles? Why should okay. we care about cycles? Okay, so let me just give a little background. When you talk about innovation, when you talk about entrepreneurship, you know, everybody's got this, you know, this gold search for the golden ideas. If I could just have this big, amazing idea, I can change the world. And I think it's actually a real disservice to the world because in fact, very few times do people have a big idea and almost every idea that's a big idea was a small idea once. So the book cycles is about the process of how you take small ideas and grow them into big ideas over time. The cycles are the cycles of learning that you go through step by step to make the idea a little bit bigger, a little bit better, a little bit better until you finally get a big idea. And, you know, for anybody who's listening, if you're not creative and you're not brilliant first out of the box, um, there's a lot of truth in the fact that persistency beats creativity and brilliance every time. And in fact, um, there's a few studies out there showing about who's more creative, engineers or artists. 
in terms of developing new business ideas? What would you think, Soria? Of course, if I'm asking the question, you can you know it's a counterintuitive answer. But why why would the engineers be better at building ideas over the long run than the artists? Because they're out there executing, getting things done, trying things out. When it doesn't work, they have to find it and fix it. So so they actually doing instead of thinking and imagining, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's the persistence. An engineer makes a small idea, he gets a little bit better. It makes a little bit better. It keeps on going, keeps on going. And too many artists are distracted by the bright lights. So he said, I make a great idea. Oh, but that one's much better. And they go off to another idea. And then they go off to another idea. And in fact, you know, the opportunity that exists if you want to make big ideas is to be focused on where you want to go and equally important to be focused on a continual progress. It's not the mass, massive leap you're going to get this month, but it's where you're going to get over the next six months. You know, we always overestimate what we can do in a month or two months in the case of me finishing up a book, but we underestimate what we can do over two years if we're consistently focused on something. So how do we, how do we prevent killing ideas in a stage where they're not good enough yet? Hmm. Preventing getting ideas which are not good enough. Have preventing preventing killing ideas which are not good enough. How do we prevent uh, destroying the ideas before they grow into something that you can actually, you know, see that it works? See, see, you know, it's kind of funny because I think, you know, people are really precious about ideas and they're worried about killing ideas. But in fact, coming up with ideas is the easiest thing in the world. It's actually the best thing you can do is to, you know, what we talk about in the book is about shooting the puppies. You know, these brilliant little ideas that, are, you know, you've, you've been in love with them for a long period of time. And what you do is you have to kill a few of them off so that there's room for the other puppies to grow. And I think the challenge that comes up is to learn to be hard about your ideas and also honest about your ideas. If your idea really has no future, there's a good reason to kill it. And if the idea has a future and it continues to grow over time, keep on nurturing it, keep on giving it food, and maybe it grows into something great. And it's sort of that balancing act between looking for the great inspiration and being satisfied with a process of building things over time. And I would bet on the builders over the creators any day. Now, what's kind of interesting about this is in, in fact, when I look at my story, um, I've done 11 companies. I've had nine successes. Now, a lot of people think that an entrepreneur is the most risk-seeking individual. I'm actually just the opposite. I avoid risk. And the reason I succeed is because what I do is step-by-step step take away the risks. And I think the good ideas do the same type of thing is they build things and they take, they're brave and they face the biggest risk every time. And they keep on going and keep on going to build something great. And, you know, this is uh, actually what I wanted. This was in my head, something that I wanted to ask you. So you're leading me in the right direction, I guess, is could you maybe explain a little bit about the, the approach in the book and in the whole methodology of cycles 
which is very kind of a structural approach of ABCS, right? So what does that stand for? And why should people follow a sequence in, in building ideas? So there's an expression in English. It's as simple as the ABCs, which is why I chose ABCS. And it took me a long time to fit it into that acronym, by the way. But you know what's really there is, in fact, I'm not inventing something new. The ABCs is not something new. In fact, if you look, there's a guy named Edward Deming a long time ago who came up with something called Plan, Do, Study, Act. If you look at the Lean Startup, which is Build, Measure, Learn, which is Plan, Do, Study, Act with different words on it. You look at Strategizer, they're talking about the same thing. So in fact, the ABCs is a simple way to remember something, but probably the more important thing is how we do it differently. So if you think about the Lean Startup, and it's one of my favorite books, and I was so jealous when it came out. I said, I could have written this, but I didn't, of course. Uh, but he's, he's probably the best that I've seen in explaining to people the need for iterative cycles to grow ideas over time, build things step by step. And the build, measure, learn for me is BCS. And what we've done in the ABCs is we've added a little bit in front which is before build, you have to figure out what you want to build. And so the theory that comes up is the A is about alignment, figure out what you want to do. B is build something that matches the thing that you want to do. C is about communicating and checking it and being a little bit honest with yourself that most of your ideas are not great. And if they're not great, you got to kill a few along the way. And the S is about systematically improving the ones that remain after you go through the process. And what you do is you go all the way back to the A again, after you figured out what you're doing and you just keep on doing the cycles again and again and again until you get there. And that for me is the theory of the theory of the ABCs. I don't know if it makes sense. You haven't read the beginning of the book, so I don't know. I'm definitely gonna do that, Brian. Uh, this is actually my to-do list for this week. So I'll, you know, I'll tune in to to share my learnings. But but you know what you mentioned is until you get there, um, and I think this is something you've been building eleven companies yourself. What does it mean getting there? When do you know when you get there? Hmm. God, you got good questions. Um, getting there. I think a lot of it is about being proud. I mean, the fact that you're delivering real value to somebody, I think a real business is something that delivers something which is meaningful and unique, that does something better and different than somebody else has done before. The second thing that comes up of a business, and this is something a lot of entrepreneurs forget, it's not the fact that you build something which is meaningfully unique, but that also that you're able to extract value. So from the value that you're giving out, that somebody pays you a little bit for that money coming back. And I guess the place, what I would say is when you've achieved success is when you've done something that's really important and somebody's willing to pay you for it. And you've got a business which continues to grow and get better. So for me, my background has always been, I'm the starter. And quite quickly, I hire a CFO and the CFO is the person who takes over my company. So my job is get it up and going, get it up and moving, and then you give it to somebody who's going to do the daily process of making it a great company. You know, I'm going to go a little bit off topic, but I think it's really interesting. 
how did you get aware about your strengths? I think many people kind of assume there's only one way. I need to be the, the front runner and build the company from A to Z. But in your case, it seems like you're quite aware of what your strengths are. Like you, you build stuff, you, you start the process, you bring people on board, you excite them, and then you give it to somebody who can run it better. But, but how did you, you know, become self-aware about your strengths, your passions? I, I think what happens is if you do enough stuff, at a certain point in time, you run into the wall a few times and you say, my God, I can't do that. So a lot of it is not wisdom, but just continual failure. And then if you continually fail at something at a certain point in time, you realize that you're never going to be a great CFO. In fact, I have my MBA in finance, which is really, really embarrassing, but I work as a marketer. Um, but I think, you know, what happens is if your passion is strong enough, you can leave ego out of the equation. You know, I think one of the things that you have is a, you know, as the CEO of a small company is you want to be the star everywhere. You want to be the star marketer, star innovator, the star deal maker, the star this. But in fact, if you give up that ego a little bit and say, look, what you need is you need your business to work. Then you learn to take a step back and say, I'm going to let the people step in that can do this better than me. And I think you know, what you'll see is the experienced entrepreneur is much more aware of what they can do and what they can't do. And they're much less concerned about how they look than about how the business looks. So the answer to your question, how did I learn to step back? It's being so incredibly focused on wanting the business to succeed that I take myself out of the equation when I'm slowing the business down. And I think that's really important, a really important message for anybody who's an entrepreneur listening is you're not perfect at everything. And even if you are perfect in everything, um, you can't do everything. So regardless of what you do, you have to learn to delegate and you got to learn to give it to good people. And I just want to praise you, Brian, for, you know, from the first time we met, I, I really was impressed by your humbleness because you would, even though you, you have a lot more life and business experience than me, you would take notes, you ask me questions, you say thank you. So you always have this sense of curiosity of trying to see maybe there's something that I'm missing. Maybe I can learn somebody from somebody. So, so I think I just want to praise you for this. And my question, my next question is, what would you advise your 20 years younger self What'd be your advice? <laughs> oh, I would advise him to be a lot less of a good boy. <laughs> you know, you're 20, you're so concerned about, you know, the next job and the next thing that you're going to do and getting the good grades. And, you know, 30 years later, nobody's ever asking for a transcript. I guarantee you that. And I could have had a lot more fun. And I think... The advice I would give to a younger me is to follow my passions and interests a lot more than what people were telling me was important. I mean, when I was 22, I was in an MBA program, really good student. And actually, I sort of dropped out of the MBA program because there, I knew a bunch of people in the philosophy program and started going to classes in philosophy instead of the MBA program. And, you know, what an amazing change in life. 
And, you know, my 20 year old should have been going to the philosophy courses instead of the MBA. But then, you know, who knows what would happen in life. So I think the I would be less good. I would be less worried and realize that an amazing passion for something, if you really want it, you can probably learn how to do it. And I think a lot of people start their life with sort of a fixed mindset. So I'm good at this and I'm not good at this. But in fact, most of the people that are successful weren't good when they started and they got good because they kept on working and kept on practicing it. And the, the advice I'd give, I would learn to dance earlier because I can learn to dance. I would try to learn to sing, but I haven't been able to do that and give it a little bit more practice. That's a, that's an offhanded answer to your question, but it's an honest answer. Yeah. And I, I appreciate it. I thank you for that. I'm thinking about right now, you know, because we spoke about structure, innovation and structure, how important it is to have a, a process in place. Um, mm -hmm. And one of my previous guests, her name is Natalie Nixon, and mm -hmm. she's the founder or she's the author of The Creativity Leap. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, the whole book or the whole concept she has is finding your own balance between rigor and wonder. Um, so I, I wonder, you mentioned dancing, I wonder if you can maybe explore with me a little bit how important for innovation is this other side of things, you know, not the, the structural thing, but more the, you know, to balance it out with spontaneous and crazy things. And, and if you have any, <laughs> any practices that uh, help you to get into this more innovative state of mind. I mean, I, I think the, the, the complete answer to that is you have to have wonder. You have to have an enthusiasm and a curiosity about things that you're doing. At the same time, as she was talking about, you need also rigor. And the thing is, if you do 100 things, you will probably do 100 things pretty average. What you need to do is you need to focus in on a few things and do those with wonder and joy, but also with rigor. You have to practice deliberately. You have to learn deliberately. You have to say, look, how do I become better than I was yesterday? And, you know, at the same time, you know, where innovation comes from is from a playfulness a lot of times. It's being open to the things that you see and being you know, a little bit self-aware that maybe you had the whole thing wrong before, and it's time to switch and go in a different direction. So the wonder is keeping your eyes open, but the rigor is keeping it moving forward in the same direction. And it's sort of a yin and a yang. And if you don't have the yin and you don't have the yang, you're not going to have the, you know, the wonderful result that you need. And what I do believe is there's an overemphasis on creativity. I think if you put really, really creative people in a system that doesn't work, they will not create amazing things. If you give an amazing system to people that are moderately creative and it supports and nurtures them as they move forward, amazing things will pop out of the other side. So what you're looking at is the system and the structure and the rig rigor is there to enable the creativity because creativity on its own isn't the solution. 
that was amazing. Thanks, thanks for sharing. Uh, I'm happy we recorded this. Um, and um, we actually have the first question uh, from one of the people watching. Uh, her name is Ronitza. So she says, afternoon, I've always wondered how do you come up with a product that's original, unique, and people really love? God, if I had the answer to that, I'd be a rich man. <laughs> I, I, I think what you have to do, in fact, um, there's a colleague that I know, uh, his name is Doug Hall, and he talks about a magic recipe for innovation. And he says that meaningfully unique ideas come from a, a standardized process. What you need is stimulus. So what you need to be out is you need to see lots of new stuff. You need diversity to see the stimulus in different ways, and you need to take away fear. When you have stimulus, diversity, take away fear, and you have a system to move it forward and continually make it better, what you'll do is you'll take average things and make them into great things. And I think what you have to do is also have a certain degree of persistence and never satisfied. Because the great things, I mean, Google, does, Soyan, do you know what Google started out as? What was when? their original Google? Google, what were they going to do? I'm not sure. I think I heard it before, but I can't recall it at the moment. What was it, the first idea? It was actually, it's about library systems and managing the links between mm. articles and things like that. I mean, if they could have made an amazing system there about article, article management and libraries. But in fact, the way Google became what it was is this persistence to make something great, to change the way that we are to change the way that the world manages information. And it's this aspiration that keeps things going. So I guess the answer I'd give to your questioner there is the way that you make something great is to start out with an aspiration of being great and never waver from the idea of doing something great and never accept for something which is second best. And when you've got something which is second best, you have to keep working to make it the best. You know, uh, a couple of episodes ago, <laughs> I was speaking to the founder and CEO of um, one of the fastest growing e-commerce in uh, Eastern and Central Europe, um, which we call New Europe. So his name is um, Martin. He's from Irene. And um, what he said is he was quoting the, maybe you've heard this famous uh, quote from the LinkedIn co-founder and CEO, former CEO, uh, that was uh, something around the lines of, uh, if your product is not embarrassing you, then when you when you launch it, then, you know, you're probably not there, right? Um, you know, the quote was a little bit different, like, but but there was this, this meaning of, no, no, but you I, know, I people, think... people are very like waiting to come up with the perfect thing and, and just keep on analyzing and overthinking and, and there's a lot of those technical people, especially strong technical people, great ideas, have a vision about a product and so on. And they start building and building and building. And then you talk to them and say, have you spoken to customers? Have you spoken to people who are willing to use your product? No, no, no. We're not ready. We have to build it first. And then we'll go and, and, and we'll start uh, talking to customers. So, so I, I, had, I had a talk today with Arjun Grun, which is one of the co-authors in the book. And we were talking about, you know, secret to success. And, you know, what you have is you have sort of this build it 
build something amazing and then get feedback. So the idea is you build something amazing, you get feedback, you go out and interview 300 people and they tell you if the idea is good or bad. And he said, you know, for him, the key to success is not still to interview 300 people, but you break it up into 10 different sessions. So next week you interview 30 people. The next week, you know, two weeks later, you do 30 people. So instead of you developing something on your own, you're constantly getting this feedback and you're constantly stretching yourself. So, you know, when the leak thing guy is talking about launch a product you're embarrassed in, you know, that makes perfect sense. It's not that you should be content launching the product you're embarrassed in, but it's getting that feedback that's going to move it from one step to what the next step. And LinkedIn, I mean, his product was, he launched something embarrassing, but he made it better and better until it was great. And he was brave enough to go out and get the feedback early. So another answer to the question that was there earlier, persistence. But persistence is about constant and continuous feedback. It's about learning bit by bit and also taking the risk that you might make something worse every now and then. It's not a glorious process where you keep on getting better and better. Sometimes you get worse and worse and worse, and then you have to go back to where you were before. We actually have a comment from uh, Fadi. Thank you for tuning in, Fadi. Um, so what he says is, if you love your product, people will love it too. Steve Jobs did products that he admired himself, didn't release them until he's satisfied. Another angle to see product development lifecycle from. Um, you know, Fadi, there's an, there's an interview with Steve Jobs which is actually a really good interview. He talked about what happened when he left the company. And he said, when he left the company, John Scully caught a disease. And that disease was the belief in big ideas. And he talked, uh, Steve Jobs talked about the craftsmanship of building ideas. And he said, look, you don't have a great idea when you start. It's an idea that you build over time, that you get better and better as you go. And in the same interview, he talked about how you make something great. And he talked about a lesson he got from his father. And he said, look, at a certain point in time, there's a commitment to getting things so right that even people don't know, but you know it's built in. And Steve Jobs talks about how his dad taught him to paint the back of the fence. And Steve was saying, why would I ever paint the back of the fence? And he said, because the back of the fence is part of the, part of the fence and you want to make it great. So Steve Jobs, of course, is really, really, really into great ideas. But he's also in the idea that you actually have to work hard to make great ideas. He's willing to do the effort. And if you watch the process of which he built products, he was a ruthless tyrant. And he continually pushed people to get better and better and better until it was good enough to go. So he didn't launch products that he was embarrassed in, which is maybe part of his success, but he certainly did lots of iterations and lots of belief work to make ideas better and better. Great question, Fatty, by the way. And Brian, by the way, what's your what's your take on Steve Jobs' leadership style? You know, that's uh, just interesting to hear what you think about it. Have you ever read his autobiography? No, not yet, no. God, he sounds like an absolute insane human being. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, if any of us tried to copy Steve Jobs, we would probably fail. 
he had enormous gifts and enormous talents that a lot of people don't have. And because of those talents, he could get away with being a difficult manager. Um, and I think what you have is you have a process where somebody was so perfectionist and he pulled up the bar so high that people followed after him. Um, by the way, I've got an interesting story about Steve Jobs. I have a personal letter from Steve Jobs. And it was a long time ago. I had an office. We had a bunch of Apple computers. And all of our computers were crashing. And we tried to get service. We tried to do everything we can do. And being a little bit of a bastard, I said, look, you know, if they don't fix it, I'm going to contact the board of Apple. So what I did is I got all the the telephone numbers and email addresses of the people at Apple and sent them a message saying, you know, your, your products suck. And, you know, I know which company I should sell short. And I got a letter back from Steve Jobs, which is about four lines long. Don't be an idiot. Don't sell Apple short. And you're a jerk. So I do have a personal, personal experience with Steve Jobs. And, you know, What's good about this is the guy said what he thought. And if, if you were to think about one of the greatest leadership skills that's getting lost over time is the ability to be honest and candid. You know, yeah, when you bring in something to your boss, he always tries to find a few positive things. I think Steve wasn't very much into the finding the positives. If he thought something sucked, he would tell you it sucked and make you walk away. So he's probably not somebody any of us can emulate. Maybe there's a Steve Jobs in the audience here who's got all the skills, but I think the commitment to the craft of building ideas, the commitment to work until something is great, the commitment to get the details right, because the details count. And I think, you know, what you look at is a lot of products, they finish them 99%, but the exponential product is finished 100%. Before we continue with the discussion, um, when did you receive this letter from Steve Jobs? Was that a, like a written letter, like uh, on the post or? No, it was, a, it was an email. It was just after he came back. And um, oh God, I don't know how many years ago. It's probably 14 years ago or something like that. And so, I, I laughed <laughs> and it pissed me off as well. But at the same time, I laughed. Because you know, I was being a jerk about it. I would okay, love to see if you if you keep this email, I'd love to see it. They did fix my computers, so that was good. So what they had done is they had installed the wrong memory in all the computers. Mm. So all the all the computers in the office were randomly crashing because the memory was a misfit. But got uh, it, got it. I'd love to see this email if you still keep it. And, yeah. um, uh, so Fadi is, is uh, commenting back. Thank you, Fadi, for being with us. So he says, agree, customer feedback and the lean model were crucial for increasing the chance for a product success, loving the discussion and a thumbs up emoticon, which we appreciate very much, Fadi. So thank you yeah, for that. Cool. <laughs> Amazing, man. It's, it's crazy when you start digging what kind of stories you can come across with. And I think that was also one of the things that we, we you know, we've been exploring with you and with the other co-authors mm. when the projects of the Psychos book began. Mm. Uh, and I remember we had a conversation on Skype back then and, and you, you told me, I'm looking for those stories that um, are not overused, you know, stories that uh, 
There's teach no you Apple. something. Yeah. No Apple, no <laughs> PayPal, no no Elon Musk. No Spotify. Yeah. And and you know the thing is, what happens is we've all heard these stories again and again. And the biggest risk with these stories is very few, very few of our companies are Apple. Very few of our companies are Google. If you're going to learn to innovate, you have to learn how the bookstore down the street innovated. You have to learn how, you know, the delicatessen served a different type of meat and in increased his profit. And those are the things that you don't find. And that's the thing that was cool when we looked at the co-authors coming up with different stories coming in, which are not your typical stories. You know, it's really interesting. I, I didn't manage to join the last co-authors call, but I watched the recording and just like you mentioned uh, 20 minutes ago, it was interesting how you have a bunch of super smart, super successful uh, people that have different opinions on, on subjects. Uh, because sometimes you'll say, okay, that's, that's pretty clear. We should do it this way. But uh, it was really interesting to see this conversation from the last uh, co-authors call. And I think most of them actually had really good points. But... Uh, um, and it also kind of brings me back uh, to a startup founder I was coaching and, and he was in the process of, of raising funding and he wanted to go and to meet investors. He never, he never talked to any investors. And, and he's one of these very analytical data people. You know, we need to go and talk to as many people as possible. Who basically, they reach out and they spoke to over 100 investors before making any kind of a move. But these are data people, you know, they're like... Um, uh, you know, I always joke, and and even if you if you if you read our book, uh, perform, uh, I include an example. I asked the guys, so how how many hours do you guys work per week? Because I know they're working really hard, so I wanted to emphasize on the importance of execution. And he sends me an email for the last two point fifty five years. We've worked sixty nine point five hours per week. <laughs> <laughs> So they are these 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 kind of people. They they're amazing. I love them. But yeah. they did the same approach with reaching to customers, reaching to investors. So basically, um, speaking to one of the people, one of the um, you know, speaking to the, all these hundred investors, this co-founder told me. So it's really interesting that when you speak to people, you speak to so many investors, you realize at the end that everybody has a different opinion about things. You know, it's there's no such a thing as this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing, or uh, pretty much everybody has a, a different opinion and it gives you a different type of advice. So, so I think it's a very interesting uh, thing. There's no such thing as universal knowledge, so to say. So... By the way, uh, guys who are watching us right now, I can see the beautiful face of Brian is, is stuck on the screen right now. So hopefully he's going to be coming back. But uh, if it's not, uh, he's not coming in the next few minutes. Uh, if you have any questions, any comments, uh, please make sure to, to ask those questions in the meantime. And uh, Brian is obviously back. Uh, so we have his beautiful face back in the stream. Welcome back, Brad. <laughs> so in the last 69.2 minutes, we were offline for 34 seconds. If we want to do statistics here. Now, you, you, know what, 
But you, but you know what's what's really cool about an engineer? Okay, I'm not an engineer, but they know how to take their their gloves off, get their hands dirty, and continue working until something gets done. And you know, when you talk to the creative guys, they're all working. They all say that they're working 80, 90 hours a week. But I think if they actually measure their time, very few of them are working the 69.5 hours. They just feel like they're doing it. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, they might be spending 14 hours not doing anything else, but pretending they're working. Yeah. And that's sometimes the case, you know, procrastinating, checking YouTube videos, doing different things. So sometimes they do this, but, but I like the, what you said, when you measure, when you measure things, you actually get them done. Yeah. Um, there's a, a founder from Bulgaria, actually. Uh, and by the way, while I'm speaking, Brian, uh, I don't know if you disconnected your microphone, but I don't hear you so well anymore. So if you can fix that. But basically, there is a founder from Bulgaria. So his name is uh, Konstantin from FireUp, the CEO and founder of FireUp. And and uh, I interviewed him for the book as well. And what he shared with me is he has this simple spreadsheet. So basically, he's measuring where he spends his his time every 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. so, so every hour he would just look at his phone and say, okay, where did I spend the last 16 minutes of my time? Okay, 15 minutes watching YouTube videos, uh, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes doing this. Oh, okay, I need to top up my game. So, so by just watching and evaluating and measuring how he spends his time, it helps him to, to stay focused and be more aware about what are the what are most my most important priorities and do i spend the ability uh, the, the the most of my energy the most of my um resources into actually getting results into the the main priorities that we have so i'd like to give you a, a, is my microphone working now it's okay maybe if you get a little closer to it but otherwise i'm, I'm, on, I'm on top of it now okay, okay now it's good now it's good okay so I used to work at Procter & Gamble, and at a, at a certain point in time, they had us record what we were doing all day. And you had four quadrants of time. You could do the wrong thing, and you could do the wrong thing right or the wrong thing wrong, or you could do the right thing right or you could do the right thing wrong. Do you have any idea what the top, what percentage of time top performers were spending doing the right thing right? You know, first number that comes is five. I don't know. Okay, okay, that was better than that. We were okay. Thirty percent of your time is spent sure. doing the right thing right, on average, for a top performer. And one of the things that I pick up in the book cycles is at the end of the book we talk about systematically improve, hmm. and the systematic improvement is about focusing on the big things in your organization. And in fact, what you'll find is the average person focuses all their time on the things that they do well. The great entrepreneur is the one who looks at the biggest risk, the scariest thing that's going to kill his business tomorrow, and he spends his time fixing and removing those risks. And in fact, if you think about how you deal, if you wanted a simple way of fixing your time priority issues, you find the biggest risk with your business list your top two or three, and then you forget about everything below that until you fix the top two or three. And then what happens when you've 
taken one of them off the list, then you got a new one that floats up to the top. And the biggest risk in innovation, the biggest risk in building new products are usually things around, you know, does somebody want this? Does somebody need this? Does some, somebody do with it? And the great people are spending their time fixing the things that they're scared about. And instead of focusing on, you know, oh, we got a, a 7.2 second, you know, latency on this thing, which nobody cares about. What you're looking for is you're looking for, are we providing real value to the customer? Are we providing real things that we're doing? And why might they leave and why might they not be interested in us? And I think that's that's an opportunity for the future. So I, I think, you know, if I look, you know, when I'm listening to in this conversation, you've had some great speakers in the past, and I, I feel really honored to be in the list of speakers along the way. And I think, you know, what I would look at is we've been talking a lot about you know, what you need to do, where you need to go. It's creating a place for you to be effective, creating a system that works, being disciplined about the system, being persistent in the system, you know, focusing on the places that you can fail and removing those failures bit by bit. And you get there step by step. As the Chinese say, ipu ipu, which is step by step. And by the way, that's why the Chinese are going to beat us is they do they face the biggest risks and they work really fast and they do, you know, they've executed their business plan before we've written our PowerPoint presentation and, and they're fearless about experimentation. The idea is for them, everything they're doing is a learning process. They learn and they continue going forward. The only hope that we have in the West is we do accept failure a little bit more than the Chinese do. You know, for, from what you're exploring, what comes to mind is, so what you're trying to say is, if we consistently take measure and assess what are the biggest risks, what are the problem problems that could face us, what, what anticipating what are the biggest challenges, be it cash flow problems, be it, uh, I don't know, somebody leaving who's a very integral part of the team and you can't mm -hmm. Like all those kind of things, and and pointing your energy and attention into fully solving this problem and making it a habit in a way is a, is a pretty good, in a way, pointer of where to put our attention. It kind of brings me into the into the book of uh, Gary Keller and Jan Papayan, the one thing. Yeah, no, uh, it's it's the one thing is you if you take away the risks. I mean, my success rate in building businesses is not because I was really good at identifying the upside, but I was really good at taking away the downside. If you've taken all the reasons that you can fail away and there's no reason left to fail, you have to succeed. There's no way around it. It's just it, it's the law of math. There's no nothing holding you back. You have to go forward. And I think, you know, the one thing if you were to say, look, the one thing that an entrepreneur needs to do is be consistently never satisfied and consistently facing their biggest fears and working on removing those things step by step. I just want to let this sink, you know. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks so much, Brian. So so how do you personally, and I think I'm, I really want to, you know, hear more about how you do this. How do you personally 
organize your time? How do you, like, do you have a system, something more like hands-on operationally? Like, how often do you do goal-setting? Do you have your time management practices and hacks? Like, what do you do? To make oh, sure God. You know, do, you, do you want me to answer this honestly, or do you want me to, yes. to lie and no, tell no. me that I, that I follow sure. everything? That I, no, sometimes... No, no, yes. I know oh, no, you read yeah. a lot of books. I know you've been building a lot of companies. Tell me the truth. No, my life is my life is chaos. And actually, the reason that I'm good at coaching people and getting them is I fight lots of demons. I have bright lights everywhere. I'm always fascinated with the next new idea. And because I'm fascinated with the next new idea, I can tell people, don't look. It's like the evil goddess over there, because then the evil goddess takes you away. You're not going to be focused anymore on the thing you need to do. But I'm, my demons are bright lights. My demons are new ideas. And what I'm really, really good at is ignoring things that are unimportant. And if I think, you know, it's not what you choose to do, but what you choose not to do that really makes the difference. And... Am I good at doing this myself? Uh, I give myself a scale score, meh, seven out of 10, eight out of 10. But if I look at my score for effort, I'm giving it a 10 out of 10 every day. And you know what you have is, I think sometimes we teach people well, the things that we don't often do ourselves. And because we know how hard it is. So when I'm dealing with a startup, the manager of a startup who's got chaos, in his mind, I'm able to put structure in it. When I have a businessman who's afraid of failure, I'm able to tell him, look, I understand your fear of failure. I, I was there too. And that's, that's the opportunity, is we use the, the weaknesses we have sometimes to build strengths on the other side. So that's a way of saying that I'm in absolute chaos and just doing the best I can to manage my life. But that's okay. <laughs> you sometimes feel, I mean, you're teaching in some of the, you know, most prestigious universities in the world, you, you know, you're coaching exceptional founders, entrepreneurs. Do you feel sometimes the, the advice you give is something you can apply yourself? Of course. Of course, the advice I give is stuff I can apply myself. I mean, the question is, do you apply it? I mean, you know, the, you know, we all, we all know the doctor who smokes. He knows he shouldn't smoke. He tells his patients they shouldn't smoke. And, you know, if you close that gap in your life a little bit, you know, there's a great book, if you ever want to read, it's called The Knowing Doing Gap. We know so many things, but we don't always do the things that we know. And in fact, the real bravery is being able to close that and sometimes do the things that we know we should do and don't really want to do. And that's the key to success. You know, eat those frogs, do the things that are hard, face the death threats, you know, come into work and, you know, talk to your colleagues and you say, look, you know, if you want to do something effective tomorrow, go into the office tomorrow morning and you say, look, you know, I want to have a different type of meeting. I don't want to talk about how great we are. What I want to do is imagine my, our company has failed. 12 months from now, none of us have a job. Why did that happen? and watch the discussions and how the discussion changes. And then look at all the reasons that you're gonna fail and you make up a plan to deal with those failures. 
that's a route forward. I don't know if anybody will do it, but if anybody does it and you do it, send me a note and I'll guarantee it'll change the way you do business. I love it, man. I love it. How often do you think uh, people should do this type of uh, introspection? I think before every project, the smartest way to run a project is you write a, a press release of it failing and you write a press release of it fit of it failing and a press release of it succeeding. And what you do is you figure out all the reasons it could fail, take those away and then focus on the upside. And what we do is when we run businesses, we're always looking at the upside. Everybody's looking, you know, tomorrow it's going to be great, man. Oh, our sales are going to be there. Oh, but the reality is, you know, you have to think about how you're going to get there. What are the things that are going to block you along the way and take those roadblocks away. And, you know, the process that you're going to get there, if we talk, come back to what I'm writing about, is taking small ideas and growing them into big ideas. The process is to grow the ideas, but it's also to take the roadblocks away so those ideas have the space to grow. If you're planting seeds, you have to take away the weeds and then you'll get there. And we have, a, we have another question from Fari. Uh, Fari, thank you for being with us today, brother. Uh, fantastic. Uh, very specific question, actually. But I'm curious what you, Brian, has to say. What do you think of the consumer electronics industry now? We didn't see many rising startups in the field. What can be disrupted in this field from your opinion? So I think what happens is all the stuff in consumer electronics is better and better and better. But, you know, the thing is, the stuff is pretty good. I think the real disruption is going to be at the bottom of the market. It's going to be the cheap stuff. It's, you know, it's a phone that you don't care if you drop on the ground. The screen breaks, you, you get a new one. Instead of your 900 euro Apple iPhone, which you, you sit down and cry when it breaks. So I think, you know, the disruption that's there is not about feature creep. It's about feature reduction. Um, a great look, if you had, I, there was the flip camera, the flip video camera. It was really a crappy video camera. It had low resolution. It had a bad battery. Um, it didn't last very long, but it was really simple. You opened it and filmed. Okay. And they ended up taking 11% of the U.S. Uh, video camera market. And the way that they got there is by building something that was worse. And you build something which is worse, which is really good on one feature. And I think that's the area of disruption with consumer electronics. Because everybody's good. How do you become exceptional? You do something which is different. And Brian, uh, by the way, Silver Laos is joining in. And he's saying, oh, man, press release idea is golden. Thank Good. you so much for, for tuning in and for commenting. Uh, we actually met virtually last week. Uh, a part of a Startup Wise Guys FinTech Acceleration Program. Um, Brian, I, he's, up, he's up in Estonia. Yes. The wise Guys. Really good group. I, I know them all. Uh, great. Uh, my co-author is the CEO of Startup Wise Guys. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, but coming back to... Um, you know, my final question before we kind of start wrapping up is you mentioned you you had 11 businesses and 
eight or nine of them were making money and were successful. So I'm curious about the other two. <laughs> what, what were some of the, if you can summarize with three key points, what were the major? I can actually, I can actually summarize it really easy. Mm -hmm. Okay. The companies that succeeded, I was a risk reducer. Okay. The companies that succeeded, I usually set up a partnership with another company that was successful in the space, or I developed a good collaborative model, number one. Number two, my team was idea man, CFO, and a sales guy. So somebody who dreams, somebody who worries, and somebody who sells stuff, okay? The businesses that I failed in, I started up myself without partners, and I didn't put a team in. So the lesson for you is if you want to do it, at least in my personal experience, is take away the risks, manage the process, don't think you're too good, be open and honest about where you're going, and, you know, repeat the success. Um, you know, what I wouldn't do is one of the things that, you know, a lot of startups want to do is they want to, you know, make a dent in the universe. Well, you know, maybe make a dent in the galaxy, but do it repeatedly. I mean, there's there's a difference which is there in trying to find a recipe for success and repeat the, the recipe for success. And I think the biggest failure I had is the moment in time where I thought I was clever enough not to fail. And so, yeah, I, I've been here, I've done this before and ready to go. And you have to keep the humbleness you have to keep the humility and realize that if you don't do things right, failure is just around the corner. And keep yourself honest to yourself. Brian, being honest to myself, we have uh, another question from Fadi. Should we give him a chance or do you have to wrap up the discussion now? What do you think? I like Fadi's questions and we'll, we'll call that a day after that one. Okay, so thank you so much for engaging, brother. So I have another question, he says. If there is a decision to be made and the team is divided on it, should the CEO decide or should he, she leave it to the to be discussed until one party convinced the other? God, that's a damn good question. I think a lot of it depends upon the culture of the organization. But I think usually if you can't agree, what the CEO needs to do is they need to listen. They need to acknowledge the two sides and then make a decision. And I think these argue until, you know, somebody is convinced. Usually what you end up with is a compromise. And, you know, you have path A and you have path B, but path, the compromise between A and B might be through the middle of the forest. What you have to do is you have to say, we're either going left or we're going right. And that's the way it is. And too many times the compromise solution is not the right solution. So I would say normally, listen, decide, go. And at Intel, they said, clarify, 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 decide and commit. So make sure you understand what you're doing, decide what you're gonna do, and then don't let anyone out of the room until everyone is committed to the new decision. So the, the role of the CEO there is not just to make the decision, but part of his role is to make sure that everyone understands the decision's been made. And you're not going to come back and remake the decision next week. 
Fadi, I hope you enjoyed this answer. As Fadi, well. let, you us know, <laughs> let us know in the comments what you think. By the way, Zornitsa as well. Thank you for tuning in, for engaging, and she's sharing amazing yeah. conversation. I'm so inspired. Thank you. Thank you for taking your time to, to drink yeah. your cup of coffee with us. We really appreciate your time and attention. And let us know if anything else uh, that uh, we can answer for you or if you have any follow-up questions and comments. Um, Brian, I'm going to bring the bow back to you, uh, back to the Psychos book to kind of wrap up this amazing discussion. Um, why should people, first of all, who should uh, benefit from getting a copy from Psychos book? And why should actually people uh, buy this book and, and read it? I'm going to give you an analogy. If you were going to go to Las Vegas and you were going to start gambling, and I could tell you a way that you could predict what's going to become black and red a lot easier, would you buy the information? Probably. Yes. I think Cycles is a, is a story about a methodology which gives you the gambler's edge. Doing a new business, doing new innovation is all about risk and how do you manage risk? The smart people take the risk away step by step. The book cycle is about how do you manage that risk? How do you do it systematically to go from a 10 or a 15% chance of success to a 70, 80% chance of success? So the reason you should buy it is not because my book is great, which it is, but more importantly, because the book will increase your odds of success. And if you're willing to follow what's there and really open up and listen to it, you'll get there faster, quicker, lower risk than you got there before. And that's going to help you put the system in place that allows you to win rather than relying on great ideas coming out and saving the day. Very well said. And I had the honor to also contribute with some ideas for one of the chapters. So, so I'm really uh, looking forward to, to get the copy. Where could people find the book? Is there already a web page or a web page that is on the way to be created? There is a, there is a web page called the cycles book, the cycles I don't know if it's active, so it would be really, really good to know. But if somebody wants to come look up my name, and in fact, I'm looking for early readers for the advanced reader copy. Anybody who sends me an email says, I'm willing to read it and give you some feedback. I'll send you a free copy of the book. That's as good okay. as I can. And what I can do is I can, I can post your email yeah. after the conversation in the comments with this call to action. So people yeah. who, who are listening, maybe you get a chance to read the advanced copy and give feedback to Brian. So amazing. Yeah. And if anybody gives good copy, you'll be listed as a co-creator in the book. Boom. 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 It's a good deal. So, Fadi, you know, you, you've got some great questions. Read the book and I'll list you in the book. We'll have you up. So, Storian, I enjoyed today. You're a good, you're a good interviewer. And Thank you so I much. Something good that came out of the conversation. I want to actually finish with the, the final thing, uh, if, if that's fine with you. It's not yes. really a question. It's kind of like a question. Many people, you know, 2020 is not the usual year, least to say. So um, many people are struggling. There is a second wave in Europe and all around the world with, with this COVID situation, pandemic. Businesses are closing down and going through turbulence. So I, I just wonder what would be your final message, Brian, to 
those who are kind of going through transition, those who are struggling uh, business-wise, personally, you know, where should people focus on and how can they keep a peace of mind in these turbulent times? Hmm. I think the world is chaotic right now. And the more chaos there is, the more opportunity there is. The more that people are lost, the more that the person who sees a little bit has an opportunity. As they say, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I think the opportunity going forward is to be systematic, disciplined, and try to live with the chaos, but to move forward step by step and realize you're not going to pick up this year that you lost in a couple days. It's just not going to happen. You're not, nothing's going to fix it. The year is gone. It's been a shitty year. But if what you're do, willing to do is to make a commitment to do something amazing and do it every day, yeah, maybe by next July, you'll be twice as far as you'd been if you'd just done things normally. So I'd say it's a call to arms when there's chaos. Don't just do what you've always done. Do something different. Do it systematically. Do it with discipline. Do it with persistence. And you'll have an amazing year. Thank you guys for listening. And if you're looking for somebody to help you step up your team performance and boost your productivity, make sure to check out stoyanyankov.com for online workshop solutions and programs designed to help you go through the current situation in a smoother manner. Stay safe and keep moving forward.